0: 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Well, if you're like me, you like to get a bit of a focus on some of those historical events in Australian history. It helps you join the dots so you appreciate where we've come from and where we are going to and to see the rich fabric of history as it relates not only here on Australian shores, but how our Australian troops have made such a huge difference in places like the Middle East. And we're going to get a focus on the Middle East today, a new book that's been released from author Kelvin Crombie. It's called Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem. Kelvin's a well-known author and historian, and he's joining us today to talk about his new book. Hello, Kelvin. Welcome back to 2020.
1: Thank you, Neil. Good to be with you again.
0: Kelvin, last time we were talking, you had in your possession, in the studio with me, a wonderful uh, Bible, the Montgomery Bible. And you have been a collector of artifacts, in fact, a museum that you had begun and uh, you were a caretaker of there in Jerusalem. You're also an author who keeps a whole lot of detail about historical occurrences where Australians have been involved in history. Let me take you back to Gallipoli because it's a significant point, not only for the battle that happened at Gallipoli, but the Battle of the Dardanelles, which started a whole new journey. Take us back to Gallipoli and say why it's more important to look at Gallipoli more than ever.
1: Well, Gallipoli, of course, is central to... Uh, Australian history and New Zealand history. The former Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, once said that Australia was birthed on the shores of Gallipoli. That's a bold statement, and I'm sure that many people in both Australia and New Zealand would concur with those sentiments. Now, from an Australian perspective, we look at what happened there between the 25th of April and right the way through to early December when our troops were fighting but sometimes we i think are a bit parochial in the way we look at gallipoli we look at primarily what the australians or your Kiwi, what the kiwis did collectively the anzacs without well, stopping to reflect a bit upon the bigger picture and the bigger picture basically was the french were there and they lost something like 7000 plus soldiers killed the british were there they lost 21000 or so soldiers killed Uh, There were other soldiers there. There was a small group of Jewish soldiers who had been thrown out of Palestine, for instance, called the Zion Mule Corps. And it's important to look at the actual military campaign within the bigger context and not just focusing upon the Australian and New Zealand component. But it goes bigger than that. It's important to look at the Gallipoli campaign within a context of events in the eastern Mediterranean, and what we've tried to do in this latest publication, and it's not the first time it's been done. I used to lead tours in that part of the world for 20 or so years and uh, wrote on the subject previously. What we tried to do basically is to give a bigger picture context for why Australians and New Zealanders were even there in that region and to look at the fact that the Dardanelles, pinpointing Gallipoli, of course, but the Dardanelles was part of a, an arc They went all the way around to the Suez Canal, an arc of geopolitical significance for up until 1915 for the previous hundred or so years in the modern period, but an arc of influence for thousands of years, basically. That area from the Dardanelles all the way around to the area of the Suez has been an area of tremendous contention for thousands and thousands of years.
0: Kelvin, sometimes when we think of Gallipoli, we're thinking of our soldiers on the shore of Gallipoli and a dynamic, dramatic defeat of our ANZAC forces. Uh, and other forces that were there allied on the beaches there at Gallipoli. But what you're saying is that even though that was an unsuccessful battle that was fought at Gallipoli, the overall Dardanelles campaign to capture Constantinople, ultimately those were great successes.
1: It did. It was a road that began in Gallipoli, and it continued not to France and Belgium. There, there was a road, but that wasn't the natural road. The natural road which began at Gallipoli went down to Egypt, Crossed the Suez, went right across the Sinai, went to Gaza, we got defeated there, took a detour to Beersheba, then we won there, on to Jerusalem, great victory, and then onto Damascus and Aleppo. And by the end of 1918, we had succeeded in defeating the Ottoman Turkish Empire. You know, our troops might not have actually landed in Constantinople, however, with the defeat of the Turkish Empire, Uh, at the end of 1918, that goal was accomplished. And that was a very, very important factor in the First World War. If you reflect upon what happened in France and Belgium, hundreds of thousands of men fighting, dying... For what? Basically. A few hundred metres one day, a few hundred metres the next, they might have lost it. But in the Middle East, our soldiers were actually involved in a campaign that liberated a huge area from under Turkish Islamic domination, and that's important to understand. Neil, in that same period of time that our soldiers were fighting to liberate this region, the Turkish government was in the process of destroying up to one and a half million christians primarily in that region armenians greeks and assyrians so in a sense the quicker we defeated the turkish empire and liberated that area the better it would be for the minority groups and their survival so at the end of the day what we achieved was of great historical importance our soldiers weren't that many compared to the british but nevertheless the role they played was significant all the way from gallipoli into the sinai to Beersheba. Jerusalem and Damascus, and so forth. So we've got to see it within that broader context.
0: Kelvin, we're often reminded of our troops who uh, rode the light horse and uh, liberated uh, Beersheba. Tell me about how that all fits in with the overall picture of the effect that our troops had in the uh, liberating of Jerusalem.
1: Well, we have to realize that In order to get to Jerusalem, see, at the beginning of 1917, the British Prime Minister, new Prime Minister David Lloyd George, had made a decision not to be defensive anymore, not to just defend the Suez Canal, but to go onto the offensive and capture the entire region of Syria, um, which included the land of Israel. To do that, he had to get, first of all, to Gaza. We lost, so they had to go to Beersheba. And on the 31st of October 1917, there was a fairly large battle there. Incidentally... Uh, Most of the fighting that day was not done by the Australians. Most of the actual fighting that day was done by British infantry, who succeeded in all of their objectives. And the Kiwis also played a huge role. And then later the uh, 4th Light Horse Brigade galloped in gallantly, courageously at the end and finished the day. But it wasn't a victory won just by Australians, in actual fact it was a combined effort by all. Now once we had captured besheva of course, is a very, very important consideration to keep in mind. What's going to be the political future of the region? And so on that very day, at almost the same time as the final victory at Beesheva, the British War Cabinet had just voted for a unanimous unanimously for an important decision that Pending the ultimate capture of Palestine, uh, they would promise a Jewish national home to be established in that region. So you had two important things happening on the same day, almost at the same time. A military victory, and then a political solution as to the future. Because the Jewish minority needed to have a safe homeland. Bear in mind, Neil, that at that time, upwards of one and a half million Christians and also some Jewish people were being killed by the... The Turkish leadership, and so it was important that at the end of the war there were safe havens for these minority groups, and Palestine becoming a Jewish national home fit very much into this scenario.
0: So we're seeing the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and interestingly, when you start to talk about the loss of one and a half million Christians and Jews at the hands of those Islamists who were under jihad at that time. Uh, There are some similarities to what we're seeing even today in the Middle East, where there are Islamists who are in control of military uh, operations. Uh, Kelvin Crombie is our guest. We're talking about his new book called Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem. And isn't it great getting the context? When you think of the success of the Dardanelles campaign, even though it started off with that battle at Gallipoli being a great loss, and how it moves on, to the liberation of Jerusalem. Kelvin Crombie, stay with us because we'll come back and talk some more in just a few moments about some more of this wonderful story, Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem, back in just a few moments with Kelvin Crombie. Well, this hour we are talking about a new book called Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem. The author is historian Kelvin Crombie. We're talking about this book. We've talked about the way the Dardanelles campaign that started with Gallipoli and the horrendous losses of our Anzacs at Gallipoli, but the Dardanelles campaign was a success. We saw the fall of the Ottoman Empire and then moving on towards Jerusalem. The book is called Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem. Kelvin, tell me what was strategically important about Jerusalem uh, back into that time in the First World War.
1: Well, Neil, in one sense, there's nothing of great strategic importance about Jerusalem. Jerusalem really came onto the radar screen from about December of 1916. Until that point, the policy of the British government under Prime Minister Asquith and Foreign Minister Gray had been defensive to defend the Suez Canal, to establish a buffer zone from the Suez right up to the end of the Sinai where it bordered on Palestine of the time. Now, at the end of 1916, a new government came into power, led by David Lloyd George, and he had another policy altogether, partly because he could see what was happening on the Western Front and could see that it was a stalemate. It was a quagmire. Something else was needed. And he saw that something else as being in the Eastern sphere. And so he made a decision to go offensive, to cross into the land of Israel, Palestine of the time, and to actually become uh, an offensive force. and to capture the entire region of Syria, but, he stated clearly, he wanted Jerusalem to be captured by December, or by Christmas, actually, of 1917. Now, when you look at it, Jerusalem at the time had no significant, really significant military or strategic importance. It did have some, yes, but not a great deal. There were probably little tiny villages in France and Belgium that had more strategic and military importance. Now, neither Alexander the Great nor Napoleon were in that, when they were in that region, went to Jerusalem. And so they realized that the main fighting would be along the coastal plain and elsewhere. And so the question needs to be asked, why did David Lloyd George make that stipulation that Jerusalem had to be captured by the end of 1917? Well, he really wanted it because the peoples of the British Empire, you know, Britain itself, but the peoples of the British Empire, needed to have a moral-boosting victory, a significant Moral-boosting victory. And what better place to get a victory than Jerusalem? Jerusalem. land of Israel, but pinnacling in Jerusalem. And so that's why he said, right, we need to have this place by uh, the end of 1917.
0: So, Kelvin, how do we then describe the success, the morale-boosting victory uh, at Jerusalem? And what set up the eventual nationhood of the Jewish nation?
1: Well, Jerusalem, in the minds of Jewish people, is synonymous to Zion, synonymous to Zion, the return to Zion, the return of the Jewish people to the land. It was the capital of the Jewish people from the time King David took it. And so if you're going to have a policy, which the British government made at the Battle of Beersheba, for a a Jewish national home in Palestine. Then, of course, Jerusalem would figure in that. So in the minds of Jewish people, yes, Jerusalem and the return to Zion are synonymous, also in the minds of many Bible-believing Christians spread throughout the world at the same time. And so there you have two constituents, two groups of people. But even those who were not going to synagogue or going to church, they also understood there was something of great significance in Jerusalem. Now, once Jerusalem was captured... Lloyd George made a statement, or he actually wrote about it some time later, and he said something like this. He said, in 1917, we had something like 600,000 casualties on the Western Front. Um, For what great gain? For what, what did we gain from it? But look at what's being achieved here in the Far East, in this region. Not only did they conquer a large amount of land, but they took Jerusalem, a place of great emotional, you might say, and spiritual significance. However, don't forget that Jerusalem was the third holiest Islamic city, and we are fighting against the Turks. The Sultan of Turkey was the caliph of Islam. And so as much as it was a beneficial thing for us, the Allies, look how detrimental it would be for the Ottoman Turks, but also the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians who were fighting with the Turks at the time. And so you've got to factor in all those particular things when you start talking about uh, the capture of Jerusalem in
0: 1917. It may be a side issue, but the importance of the Germans and the Austrians siding with the Islamists, uh, is that because somehow or other the ideologies were quite similar?
1: No, I'm not going to go down that particular track. And you might find somebody else who's done a lot more research in it than myself but it has to be seen within the context the broader context of geopolitics of the time Uh, turkey was a very very important factor then very very important and believe me it's becoming more important again and will be so in the future you know keep your eyes upon what happens with turkey it straddles the region between the east and the west and Germany for some time had been wanting to establish commercial interests in the region of the Turkish Empire all the way down to the Persian Gulf. You might have heard of the Berlin to Baghdad Railway, for instance, which is part of it. And so for Germany to expand economically, it really had to look east. There was a certain policy she had looking east, and one of those aspects of that policy was economic penetration into the region of the Turkish Empire, spreading all the way down to the Persian Gulf, from where she could then go and actually have a commercial interests in the Far East as well. So there was a very, very strong economic uh, geopolitical consideration in this relationship between Turkey and Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's rather ironic that for over 100 years, Britain had a good relationship with Turkey geopolitically, only upset a few times. Yet right at the crucial time in 1914, the 2nd of August 1914, actually, in a secret agreement, the Turks decided to join with the Germans and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which meant that now Britain was at war against Turkey. Now, if that hadn't happened, if Turkey had entered into the First World War as an ally of Britain, you would have no modern Israel as it is now. You'd have no modern... Right now, I can't say it, but you would have had no Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. Because all those political entities resulted from the fact that Turkey joined in the war against the British, and therefore there was a, uh, a compulsion for Britain to have to go to war. The end result was the Turkish Empire was defeated in the war. And the end result of that was the establishment in time of Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and Saudi
0: Arabia. And for anyone who's a uh, history buff, uh, that will be like gold, uh, knowing how all the dots join together in the way that you've just described. And I know people who are history buffs will be out in force to get a hold of your new book called Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem. Kelvin Crombie, let me ask you, you've got a special launch coming up. You've had a number of launches, but there's one in the eastern states coming up on the 25th of August. Tell me about that one, and there's one also at Parliament House in Canberra.
1: Well, there's one uh, in Parliament House in Sydney, sponsored by uh, Fred Nile, and if people would like to, to go, they will have to contact the office there in Parliament House, Macquarie Street in Sydney. Uh, it's a closed event uh, at Parliament House in Canberra, but there is an event in the evening at the Canberra House of Prayer, Guildfall Road in, in Canberra. That's in the evening of the 28th. And also in the evening of the 31st of August in Toowoomba. And those details people can locate on the website, www heritageresources.com.au
0: That's right. Dates for launches at www.heritageresources.com.au and also the book will be available from ucbdirect.com.au Kelvin Crumbie, the author and historian whose latest book is Gallipoli, The Road to Jerusalem. Kelvin, always informative when I get a chance to chat with you and thanks so much for being with us again today on 2020.
1: Thank you, Neil. Thanks for the opportunity of being able to chat with you and the folks around Australia.
0: Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.